in Nigeria, the situation has gotten progressively worse just for the country as a whole. Even if I can't look at my direct surroundings and and feel hopeful immediately, I can look at feminists around the world, you know, and the progress that they're making. What we think of as feminist organizing expands or has expanded for me the more that I learned from other feminists around the world. That's how it feels to be a feminist in Georgia, to fight every single day, um, to be able to also articulate in the public that you are for gender justice, for women's rights, that this is a central core value of your existence. When we think about cross-regional solidarity, when we talk about intergenerational and intersectional connectedness, this means that the very dependency of our feminist movement to survive as a political act and as a liberation project is at the heart of us being connected. You're listening to That Feminist File, a new podcast that unravels over 40 years of feminist movements and reimagines a way forward. I'm your host, Gopika Bashi. I'm a passionate feminist at heart, and I also work at AWID, an organization that supports feminist movements worldwide. Young feminists around the world have the opportunity to connect, learn, share, and build solidarity among each other. But they also face challenges, including a lack of access to financial and other kinds of resources to turn their ideas into reality, and the politics of navigating power dynamics within feminist movements. In this episode, we'll tell the story of three young feminists from different continents. These advocates faced challenges in keeping to their calling, but they also found a way to advance their feminist agendas through leveraging transnational feminist solidarity. We'll also explore how these activists are passing the baton to younger feminists while transitioning into allies and advocates for young feminist organizing. Sandy Hanna is from Ramallah, a Palestinian city in the Central West Bank. This is the only country that gave me a sense of purpose. And despite the fact that the situation on both social, political uh, levels is complicated, it still is a source of joy to be Palestinian. I know we always say how complicated it is to be an activist in Palestine, but I will also want to say that... If it was not for Palestine, this sense of revolutionary love would have been missing throughout my activism journey. Um, I was born to a very normal family, let me say average uh, middle class um, family that came from different um, backgrounds. We had a huge appreciation of human rights in our home, but our house was not political So I wouldn't say my parents were political. They haven't experienced firsthand any um, 
experience being part of a political party or imprisoned or any kind of encounters that some other Palestinian families have been through. And therefore, I would say that I grew up as an adolescent girl in a very quiet environment, um, many classes after school, lots of reading and arts. And it, it was just a normal upbringing in med of a political chaos that I have absolutely no idea about. I knew back then that there was an occupation. I would say, honestly, I did not see the implications until the Second Intifada took place. The Second Intifada was a Palestinian uprising against the Israeli occupation. I was 14 when the Second Intifada took place. It coincided with the fact that my mother was diagnosed with cancer. It was already too painful for me as a girl to watch the backbone of our family, my mother being terribly ill and feeling actually hopeless about not being able to do anything. And that source of powerlessness as a girl was already too much to handle and to process. But at the same time, it was the second intifada. There were tanks in the streets and there were soldiers in our house and they just show up fully armed and we did not know my three siblings and I I'm the oldest so we did not know what this meant back then why are soldiers being in our house why is my mother being denied transfer to another hospital for medication why is there like the sounds of the bombing does not stop and I think it was back then when my first set of questions started to evolve. And I think that was the milestone in my life is to be able to question things, not to experience them, because I think that we all experience different things in life, whether political or social or anything else. But I think the ability to criticize and to critically question and interrogate the things that we go through is what makes us be able to transition towards the collective space of being an activist. These experiences pushed Sandy to deepen her activism. So I think from that moment where I experienced militarization in the fullest sense, after absolutely no idea what occupation meant, it was the moment where I decided that I want to be an activist. I decided that the things that I organically started doing are now part of my identity. I took the decision that I want to keep the work that I'm doing and I want to join other sisters. And I want to join not other sisters in Palestine only or in the Arab world because we have similar, to some extent, political climate. But I also wanted to connect with other people in the global south. I wanted to learn with young people and from them and just to be able to build on the struggles. We don't have to do everything from scratch, you know. I wanted to understand what older people were going through, how they experienced their own resistance, how they experienced their own struggles and what we can do differently to make our liberation faster. The moment I realized that I wanted to be in this space is when I became able to take the knowledge that I have and put it into action. You spoke about connecting with different feminist sisters, learning, reading, sort of getting into the organizing space. How is feminist organizing in crisis settings like yours different from other types of feminist organizing? Are there any challenges that you face that you feel are different and unique to 
that kind of organizing? I can tell you, I feel privileged as a Palestinian living in the West Bank because I have never firsthand encountered and experienced the war in Gaza. But my peers have. People my age have witnessed at least three wars in Gaza. And this has been uh, traumatizing at different levels. It has been restricting their organizing. It has been impacting and threatening what it means for social movements to be on a survival mode. So rather than having the capacity and the ability to change narratives and overall Uh, systems and structures or dismantle them entirely and rebuild them from scratch, they have been on a survival mode for quite some time. And this meant that other feminists from Palestine, from different parts of the country, needed to act and fill this gap. And this meant for me and other peers in the West Bank, taking to streets and going in protest and advocacy for us also meant that we needed to prioritize the messages that we hold at different platforms and different spaces, especially multilateral spaces. Because when we find rockets and bombs, you know, coming down on Gaza, all that you think about in the first place is making sure people are safe. We find ourselves going back to square one of just sustaining our own safety, our own protection, our own mental health, because it has been a systematic war crime. It has been intentional from the colonial apparatus that people are constantly defending their well-being and defending their emotional capacity to self-recovery. And not in the individual sense, but also in the collective sense, because Palestinians have been witnessing collective loss as part of the liberation process. It has been very painful. We acknowledge that it is inevitable, but we also realize that we have each other. And when we have each other, we are supposed to be able to process this collective loss and collective grieving together and be able to reach a place where we experience social and political self-recovery. Sandy aimed to engage the younger generation in this process of liberation through a project called Feminist Diaries. I have been a girl myself and I have never been taught Um, about the political life. And I had to go through a self-discovery journey, you know, to just figure out what's happening. I had to read, I had to talk to people, I had to stop for a second and filter what's getting into my mind. And, you know, it was a, it was a messy journey. And I'm just thinking this was what, 20, 20 something years ago? What about now? Now, a time where misinformation is out there, a time where narratives and alternative narratives and counter narratives are out there, a time where social media and different sources of information not necessarily are always credible and trusty and provide accurate information. So this is where Feminist Diaries came from. It meant for me that I did not want a future for my daughter like the one I had for myself. I did not want to be um, politically um, 
inactive when it comes to having a conversation with my daughter, with my sister, with my cousins. And it started off with just friends and relatives joining together for conversations about what it means to be a feminist under militarization and colonial oppression, because it's different than what we know feminism is coming from when you think about mainstream white feminism. And then with time and with more conversations and with more revolutionary feminists joining the movement, we started questioning what is white feminism and what is decolonial feminism. And, you know, the different examples from our lived realities reflected on defining feminism rather than receiving a concept that is already defined by other experiences, you know, like a contextualized definition of feminism. And therefore, Feminist Diaries was just a conversation where we get together, make some food, think about things such as what does it mean to be a girl in a conservative society? But it also means what does a conservative society look like under colonial oppression? We also think about the conversations that we inherited from our mothers, from our grandmothers. I have been told over and over again from my mother that I need to pursue my career. I need to go after my ambitions and my dreams and I need to be a successful working mother, right? Amazing. That's a beautiful conversation. What if I don't want to be a mother? What if I just want to be a successful person with a career? And I think the kind of conversation that we thought are progressive are not actually very progressive. Like Sandy, Nino Ugrakelidze grew up in a conservative society where being a feminist proved challenging at times. I am originally from Georgia, from Tbilisi. Um, I was born in an independent Georgia. This is very, very, very important for me because it happened right as my country was trying to be independent from Russian Empire. Well, that is a big struggle up until now. Um, and God knows how many years will it take to be fully independent. But I was born right as Georgia was declaring independence, which meant there was a war, there was a civil war. Um, and well, Obviously, I don't really remember any of the war parts, but um, my earliest memories are connected to people in military uniforms. Um, and, well, that basically was what you would define as a humanitarian setting. Um, and I think, well, growing up was, um, when you look at it, was maybe not as fun as it could. I became politically conscious and engaged from way earlier than I would want, I guess. Well, Georgia is very patriarchal, very traditional society, um, which firmly defines what women can and cannot do and be. Um, so I think the fact that my father never had the son that he wished very much helped because then I was able to do way more things. I was allowed to do more things than I would be if I had a male sibling, <laughs> my family name actually is literally like stands for someone who is very stubborn and is impossible to change someone's opinion. And when my parents were like, why are you so stubborn? I'm like, really? Are you really asking this to me right now? And so uh, hot-headed and stubborn is definitely what you would define my family as. 
I grew up in the heart of Tbilisi, in the old part, which, which definitely was a beauty of it. But it also meant that any demonstration that would ever happen was happening right in front of my school. So um, my early years and also my teenage years was literally having the sounds of demonstration in my classroom. Um, and that's what we would do right after the school would be finished, go on to the demonstration. So, and then there was a war in Georgia in 2008 when I was a um, teenager. And all, that war is the one I have lots of visual memories of. Yes, that was very difficult environment, but also made me who I am, I guess. Um, my political thinking was very much shaped by that struggle of wanting to have liberty and right for self-determination and being in charge of your own life. Growing up, Nino didn't always see herself as a feminist, even though she held feminist values. When I was growing up, I didn't really have a feminist movement around me. People would not necessarily define themselves as feminists. There was no understanding of that F word. Fighting for who I am and who I want to be was literally, I think that happened since the day I'm born. <laughs> so here you go. That's how it feels to be a feminist in Georgia, to fight every single day to be able to also articulate in the public that you are for gender justice, for women's rights, that this is like a central core value of your existence. That still is very stigmatized. When I started organizing, feminist organizing, that was very much marginalized. So I even remember periods when people would not say the F word to external people because um, feminist was like, oh, no, no, no. You cannot be that. Um, that was a big deal breaker. So, yeah, it's a struggle, but it's also fueling that energy of like, I'm going to sh- show who I am and I'm going to prove that you're wrong and I'm going to enjoy it so much. So I've been enjoying that energy since I, <laughs> I exist, I guess. Um, so here I am. Nino's determination led her to become the coordinator for AWID's Beijing Unfettered Project. In September 2020, the Beijing Declaration and Platform for Action celebrated its 25th birthday in a global process called Beijing Plus 25, or the Generation Equality Forum. AWID co-organized Beijing Unfettered in parallel to this event. This series of dialogues provided an opportunity for young feminists around the world to share their bold feminist visions and agendas. While working on Beijing Unfettered, we had opportunity to connect all sorts of social justice movements across the world. We just invited people who were younger than 30. And it meant that there were young feminists coming from climate justice organizing and organizing against militarization and come from war and conflict zones or like who are challenging corporate power. Like there was such wealth of interests and expertise and like how everyone built on each other's work. Um, I think that transnational solidarity was practiced in those Zoom meetings, especially having in mind that it, it, the Beijing Unfettered project was happening as the COVID started. 
Um, and so we were not able to meet in person anymore. We, we suddenly had no physical space whatsoever, especially at the beginning of the pandemic to go out in the street, to protest, to, to organize, um, like that was a gigantic gap of lack of connection, which BU projects really filled the gap of, and well, obviously as much as it could, because it was a virtual gathering space, but, um, after two years, we have a community and like one of the biggest things that it has given me personally, and I would assume that this is also a case for many people who are part of the BU project is a place where like people to whom we can refer when I'm, when I think of, oh, I have a question about whatever. And I, I, I just don't know the answer of, I know a person from BU project who knows. So we have a network of young feminists who support each other. And I think that is actually a very important aspect because older feminists have been in organizing for so long and they have been building these relationships and networks for so long. They also had so many opportunities to meet here and there and everywhere, but we don't have that because we are just starting sometimes or we've been in this organizing for far too long but we are not given such opportunity to network in a way that um, sometimes older feminists have. Beijing Unfettered facilitated young feminists to come together and share resources. Young feminists have so much power, creativity, energy, and also a lot of feminist anger, if I'm very honest. But then we don't always have resources for materializing our political agendas and visions and turn our demands into lived realities. And that is really devastating for me sometimes. And that's the moment when I feel like, ah, what are we doing? Why are we doing? Having some existential crisis sometimes. But then you can see an alternative organization. You can see SA with would call autonomous resourcing, right? Like young families looking at what resources do they have seeing each other as resources as well. And that's literally what we did at Page Unfeathered. Looking at each other as resources and then saying, okay, how can we unite our, our forces and resources in a way that we push something together? So I think that is rebuilding that faith in humanity and that's literally giving me this energy of, okay, it's more clear in my head now. I see why I should continue what I'm doing. Anwulika Ngozi Okonjo was one of the young feminists that participated in Beijing Unfettered. I fell in love with it after participating. It was the first time that I'd ever been in a space with young feminists from all over the world. I'd been speaking with a lot of African feminists, but like I'd never gotten to hear about like everything else that was happening everywhere else. And um, I just, I like really, really enjoyed our conversations. I enjoyed hearing about, you know, what they were doing in their communities and sort of sharing ideas around like tactics. We had a lot of the same like um, ideas and even identifying like some of the problems that young feminists were facing, like being under-resourced. I didn't know that that was a problem that was shared. Like generally, I thought that that was just us. You know, a lot of the young feminists I knew had wanted to do things and then just didn't really have the support or resources or training to do it. But, um, you know, I think 
Nina was fantastic because she was like a real mentor for me and um, was just really generous in connecting um, me and to resources when, and then I would do the same for others. As someone who has lived across different continents, Anwulika enjoyed connecting with feminists from all over the world. Born in Lagos, Nigeria, Anwulika has lived in South Africa, the UK and the US. I was kind of like shuttling back and forth between, you know, Johannesburg, Lagos and um, the countryside um, <laughs> in, in England and then eventually went to university in the US. Even though I've moved a lot and like have been in a lot of different places, I'm very much consider myself to be Nigerian. My family's from a place, a small village called Ogwashuku, um, um, or the Aguashuku Kingdom. And um, our lineage traces back like several hundred years. And we're actually like part of the royal family, which is not like the British royal family. It's more like um, servant leadership. And um, so everyone from Oguashuku is also Igbo. And essentially what it means to be rulers where we come from or, or, or leaders where we come from is that you're actually sort of subject to the people around you. And so you serve as part of your community. Um, and so that was kind of like the way that I was brought up was really with the sense of like, you know, servant leadership, the gates to like famously it was like the gates to my grandfather's house which is the kingdom or whatever, the palace, are always open. So people would just come in and out and it doesn't really, you know, belong to anyone. He built it and everything, but it belongs to everyone in the community. Anwalika carried this sense of purpose throughout her life, but she only felt connected to the feminist struggle after she joined the social movements lab at Duke University. Every week, I would be in this um, small lab on a remote part of the campus and I, we would meet with like activists from all over the world. And really it was just a space of like learning from each other. And the whole premise was that there was no separation between academia and, you know, theory and whatever and what happens on ground. When Anwulika returned to Nigeria during the Christmas holidays that year, she began engaging as an activist. I'd been through something that was really sort of emotionally, you know, harrowing and, and, and was working through it. And I, at the same time, I've been reading about all these incredible histories of women. And I wanted to actually start like understanding the women around me um, and understanding how, you know, how was it that we were so incredibly strong and powerful and yet at the same time seemed to be so subjugated by, you know, whatever systems were at play. And coincidentally, that holiday or when I was back home one night, I found out that, you know, a bunch of young girls, my age girls at the time, were coming forward about being sexually assaulted. And, um, you know, it started with one person. Um, this was, I guess, also around the Me Too time. So, um, it started with one person sort of sharing her story on, I think, Snapchat and Twitter. And then suddenly it was like the floodgates opened and they started putting together a list that was circulating of who these abusers were. And it wasn't strangers. It was, um, you know, guys who were, you know, very familiar, who were in their immediate circles that we went to school with. 
What these women shared resonated closely with Anvulika's experience. She decided to join a protest against sexual violence. We ended up with about like 300 people just marching down the streets of Lagos. And, um, you know, it was so overwhelming in the intense, its intensity and, and the, the power that I felt in that moment, but also just emotional was the first time I'd ever seen people my age, um, girls my age, but also there were, you know, there were guys who were there, there were parents who had joined us um, actively standing up for something that we saw as wrong. And, you know, in defense of women's, like our girls' bodily autonomy, but also just like, you know, the name of the group was We Will Not Be Silent. And I just really loved that name as well. Um, so as I was marching, I didn't go with anyone. My dad had dropped me off. Um, as I was marching, I felt like this sense of, you know, unity and strength. Um, and um, I also felt like really cathartic. And I knew that I wanted to do that more, not just the protesting, but the ability to actually bring people together to stand up for something. After the march, Anwulika organized an event for survivors. I decided that um, we were we were going to have sort of like an open discussion, but also we would write letters to each other, you know, just sort of encouraging each other. My mom has a um, she she has a women's organization um, that's not specifically focused on sexual rights. It's just for you know women's empowerment, I guess. And um, but one thing I really love that they do is like give each other massages and just tell like affirm each other and hug each other and all that. So, you know, after we sort of shared our stories, we spent a lot of time sort of doing reparative work and just, you know, holding actually physically holding each other, but also um, just literally holding ground, you know, whether anyone wanted to cry or anything like that. Um, and that too was really beautiful. And in some ways it was, I wouldn't compare them, but it was, it was just as important as the big 300 people, you know, movement down the streets of Lagos because there were maybe about 10 people in that room, no pictures, no videos, just us um, in the back of, you know, the back garden of my house. And yet like that itself was incredibly important as a healing element. Um, and so, yeah, off the back of that, I just decided that I, I really wanted to continue to do that sort of work. For this reason, Anwulika created Through the Eyes of African Women, a platform dedicated to sharing the wealth of knowledge of women from Africa. I really wanted to document young feminists organizing across the continent. We have such rich stories the stories that are out there, the narratives that are out there um, about African women sort of objectify us or we're never the subjects um, or they lack complexity because they're not actually coming from us in terms of talking about like the layers of our relationship to society, our relationship to ourselves. I started creating a website, which I'd never done before. I didn't really have any money. <laughs> I didn't really have any money or anything. Just decided I was going to do it. I had a microphone and I would plug into my phone and I went around sort of interviewing people and asking them if they would speak with me, like some of the other um, girls in, you know, in Lagos and some who I'd organized with recently. Um, um, and then I put out a thing on Twitter 
And um, really surprisingly, some people reached back out and said that they wanted to join the team and that they were really passionate about it. From then on, we just kind of like invited people to submit, whether it was like poetry or fictional writing or letters or like whatever they wanted. Videos, someone sent like this beautiful spoken word video talking about whatever issues were going on, whatever they wanted to talk about in their countries. And we had everything from like people sort of talking about HIV um, AIDS to talking about like how they felt as young women just growing up and the pressures of society. And that was a form of knowledge creation. Like many other young people, Anwulika used social media to connect with other feminists and unite in their fight. Seeing how feminists like Anwulika utilize online spaces makes Nina reflect on her role in the movement. I'm 29. And I feel like I have to sit on the bench in a couple of months because um, I think it's very important that from here on, I continue opening doors, but stop at the door and just be like, if you need me for something, you know where to find me, but, and I'm going to be a resource forever. But I, I'm planning not to define myself as a young feminist anymore because looking at what um, I don't know, 14 year olds are doing or anyone who define themselves as young, younger feminists than me, I think the strategies have changed so much, approaches have changed so much. How young feminists are using different tools for organizing has shifted so much that um, I might slightly feel like I'm a dinosaur, like a little bit, not that much, but a little bit. For example, TikTok. Seriously, I, I downloaded the app and I was like, I have a panic attack by now. Um, but young feminists are using this application in such powerful way. So um, I think it's very important for me personally and politically for me to acknowledge that I'm, I will be young feminist until January 27. And from that day on, I'm, I'm a strong ally, but not a self-defined young feminist anymore. In her new role as a mentor, Nina wishes to give young feminists the support that she didn't receive early in her career. I wish there was more spirit of collaboration as opposed to competition because I, my personal reflection, thinking of my younger years, is that I would sometimes feel that there are some people who think I want to take their place, while that definitely is not my intention. <laughs> and so sometimes I, I had the feeling that Young feminists were seen as a threat in, in, I don't know, taking leadership for something away from some people and so on. But that um, it has to happen in a way like that energy shift and the shift in leadership and shifting that blood and political visions. That just is just inevitable. Once I cross that point of 30, I'm going to push people who pull young feminists back and be like, yo, no, stop that. Let people be, because if, if they are able to do whatever they feel is right, this world will be so much better place. So um, I'm going to call out lots of older feminists because I'm going to be like, I'm one of you now and let's talk. But I really want to be and I will be connected to young feminists organizing forever. And one question that I still have as a young feminist is, haven't you been young Weren't you young? What were you dreaming about? What were you doing in your life? 
especially in political organizing. How did it feel when you were not trusted? Do you want to change that? So I think sometimes people forget that they were young feminists as well. So this is a kind of reminder that today maybe we will all want to do something nice for young feminists and enable them and enable resources and spaces. And they will do whatever amazing things they need to do. You just have to step back sometimes. Nino advises young feminists to continue to build bridges. My hope for young feminists, first of all, is to talk to each other more. Because that is, for me, it always has been number one point of clarity. Once I talk to some other young fe- like, for example, if I talk to Sandy from Palestine, who is, it's almost like I always think, what would Sandy say? Or I think of what would Sally say from Egypt, who is also one of the most wonderful young feminists I know. So I'm like, knowing what they know and politics that they have, they almost are like my moral compass or, or mental clarity compass sometimes. So I would, my big hope probably is having stronger young feminist communities and friendships because that's, that those friendships will never leave. <laughs> that, that doesn't age out. Currently, Nino is supporting young feminists in Eastern Europe affected by the war in Ukraine. Her work has involved everything from evacuating and finding shelters to raising funds for their initiatives and drawing a spotlight to the kinds of issues they face. Similarly, Sandy is supporting young feminists as the Arab State's program officer at Purposeful, a hub for girls' organizing and activism. At Purposeful, we believe that power must be redistributed. It needs to be collectivized. It needs to be at the center and at the heart of the spaces of girls. It needs to be in the hand of girls. And some people would say this is risky. Some people would say this is just mad. How are you putting resources in the hands of girls? But we have seen that girls are always at the front lines right? We have seen girls being disproportionately impacted. We have girls being excluded. I feel that the trust dilemma is only natural. We have been taught that we are not worthy of trust as young people, as young women, as women of color, of disability, of different uh, gender identities. We have been taught by our colonizers that We are underdeveloped, undercivilized. The powerful thing about being in movements now is that we tell each other that this is not true. We tell each other that we identify our colonizers now. We see them, we name them, we shame them, we look them in the eye and we say, your imperial, white supremacist, capitalist apparatus is not going to fool us anymore. For Sandy, it is the solidarity of young feminists around the world that keeps the movement alive. For me, if you ask me what I think is the most um, important factor in our struggle is us, right? I think that without each other, as sisters, as feminists, we don't have anything left. We've seen how our political um, systems failed us. We have been disappointed over and over again but the one thing that has been consistent and constantly true is the fact that we have each other 
we don't lose hope. Um, the process of collective liberation for all um, young people and girls and women across the globe is a continuous process of accumulating labor and resistance and dismantling the different structures and system and it's a long process it's a it's a tiring process my only wish is that we continue to listen to each other we continue to build on the work of each other we don't have to do work from scratch we don't have to do the work alone just because i'm palestinian doesn't mean that i have nothing to learn from the african struggle just because i'm a young person or youngish person doesn't mean that i don't have to build bridges with girl activists and older feminists it's just that connection that is supposed to be organic and authentic beyond tokenistic slogans. When we think about cross-regional solidarity, when we talk about intergenerational and intersectional connectedness, this means that the um, very dependency of our feminist movement to survive as a political act and as a liberation project is at the heart of us being connected. It means that we are genuinely self-grounded in sisterhood. As feminists around the world face similar struggles, Sandy, Nino and Anwulika manage to speak beautifully about the different ways in which solidarity is strengthening their causes. As someone who learned so much myself within young feminist spaces, it's really powerful and humbling to hear their reflections on how they find strength through sharing and supporting one another. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to That Feminist Fire. Please also rate and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. This show is made in partnership with Human Group Media. Our executive producer is Camille Lorente, associate producer Fernanda Uriagas, Mixing, editing, and music by Maverick Aquino. To know more about AWID and to claim your place by the fire by becoming a member of our global feminist community, visit www.awid.org. I'm your host, Kopika Bashi, and I can't wait to catch you all in the next episode. <laughs>